Welcome back to the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, Addis JB3, and we are doing a bit of a flashback today. If you recall, toward the end of last year, I released an episode called Check on Your Strong Black Friend, where the episode was all about suicide prevention in addition to the rising inequities that we see when it comes to African-American boys and suicide deaths within our country. And toward the end of the episode, I made a reference to inviting someone to participate on the Equity Matters podcast who I respected in the work, who when I first got tapped to do more suicide prevention work, I went immediately to them because I saw their influence and the work that they had been doing and some of the really innovative projects that they've taken on and the way that they've been able to bring that to scale. And so today I'm really excited because I get to introduce you all to who I proclaim as my suicide prevention mentor, and that is Janelle Kubich from the state of Maryland. And Janelle's going to be bringing us insights from her seat as the chair of the Maryland Suicide Prevention Commission. And so without further ado, I would love to introduce you all to Janelle Kubich. Janelle? Yes, thank you so much for having me. My name's Janelle Cubbage. I am a licensed clinical professional counselor in the state of Maryland, where I see clients in private practice, primarily working with um, Black folks, um, LGBTQ folks, and other people of color. I specialize in treating trauma, and I have a clinical interest in racial trauma and healing. I also work full-time um, in government. So I work full-time as a suicidologist. Some people might be wondering what that means. I work to implement state-level suicide prevention interventions, and that ranges anywhere from upstream interventions, such as programming in schools, um, policy, to intervention, so how we respond to people who are experiencing ideation to postvention, providing care for people who have experienced the suicide attempt or loved ones who have lost someone to suicide. I also chair the Governor's Commission on Suicide Prevention in Maryland, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but my educational background, for those who are wondering, I earned my bachelor's in psychology from McDaniel in 2014, and a few years later, I graduated with my master's in clinical mental health counseling. So I am trained as a, a therapist, and I think like a therapist, and I think that's been really beneficial uh, to the role that I have uh, in suicide prevention. I realized once I got into that role that while having that background was useful, uh, there were a couple other pieces of the puzzle that I would like to add to my tool belt, uh, specifically around data, strategic planning, epidemiology, statistics, those sorts of things. So I decided to go back to school for public health. Um, so I am currently completing my master's in public health at Johns Hopkins as a fellow in the Bloomberg American Health Initiative. I would love to talk more about the Governor's Commission on Suicide Prevention. I think states and decision makers are paying a lot more attention to suicide deaths within their state. Mm -hmm. And I'd just be curious, how did you find yourself in that role? 
That's a great question. Um, sometimes I wonder that myself. <laughs> uh, so when I began my uh, job in the government, uh, part of my responsibilities was to provide support and staffing to the Governor's Commission on Suicide Prevention. So that's how I first became involved. Um, so I would be responsible for helping to set the agenda, providing administrative support, talking with the chair and trying to coordinate our efforts between the state and the commission because the commission is a separate entity. A few months in or so, uh, the chair at the time decided to step down and he recommended for me to become the new chair. So I was appointed to fulfill that role. I've been in that role for, I guess, two years now. Um, so that's how I got there, I guess, being in the right place in the right time. But I think it makes a lot of sense uh, that I'm in that role, uh, just given my background, my knowledge and ability to coordinate efforts between the state and the commission. So describe for us a little bit about what that role means. I mean, to be a chair of a statewide body that's making recommendations, I imagine, to different state departments, also to the governor. Uh, what does what a, I hate, I hate the what does a day-to-day -day look like, but what are some of the responsibilities that you have? So our commission is charged with developing a biennial state plan to submit to the governor. So that happens every two years. And in that plan, we are supposed to provide an update on the state of suicide in Maryland. So we provide a lot of data regarding suicide deaths, um, medical and work loss costs, years of potential life loss, that kind of information in our plan. We also look at our data and we identify high-risk populations that we should be targeting with interventions. We provide updates on work that's been achieved so far, as well as challenges that we've faced, and we identify goals and objectives that we would like to continue to work towards. We made the decision with our last state plan to align ours with the national strategy on suicide prevention. We also realized that with the resources available to the commission, um, and the nature of the commission, which is not necessarily implementation, although with our current commission membership, there is a lot of interest in implementation. We wanted to give the local jurisdictions in Maryland a template, a draft, um, a document to pull interventions, goals, and objectives um, from so that they could integrate them into their uh, local strategic plans for implementation at the local jurisdictional level. I also see my role as chair, one, not only to provide leadership, but to help facilitate a camaraderie on the commission, help the commissioners get to know one another and collaborate between agencies and help guide really diverse stakeholders towards a common goal and mission, which can be challenging at times. But we always come back to remember that we're all there for the same reason. And I think that's a really helpful touch point to return to 
uh, when we remember our diverse perspectives, experiences, and knowledge. As a member of the commission and as chair of the commission, I also see my role as ensuring that everyone who should be at the table is at the table. So one initiative before I became chair, but I was a commissioner at this point, um, was to recommend expanding our executive order. So our membership is determined by our executive order. And when I became involved with the commission, I realized that there were several groups who are disproportionately impacted by suicide who were not represented on the commission. And from an equity standpoint, I think it's really important to make those changes to get diverse representation to the table. Um, so there were conversations early on on which groups should be added. And uh, we advocated for uh, seats on the commission to represent someone from the LGBTQ community, a high school student, um, someone from the Native American community, and someone from the Hispanic and Latino community, as well as the Asian community. Uh, our commission already had representation from someone from the National Organization for People of Color Against Suicide. So I think that was a huge win for us. Um, the conversations were challenging at, at times. There was initially some pushback about expanding um, representation of on the commission and becoming a larger commission because that can create challenges. And there were suggestions that we invite people from these groups to the commission, but not make them voting members. And I think when we're talking about an equity standpoint, to invite people to the commission and expect them to do this labor, but not give them the same privileges as voting members. I think that just further alienates them. Um, and I think it just further perpetuates existing inequities. So that was something that we fought hard for um, to ensure that they were equal to every other existing commission member. You know, it's it's interesting that folks would be against that, right? Because when you're looking at lived experience, when you're talking about survivors, you're talking about groups that are at risk, there's no way if you don't, ex if you do not identify as one of those, um, one of those groups that you're going to have that insight. And so wondering, you know, I'm sure you can't share the, a lot of detail, but what were some of those conversations like to expanding the table? Um, the laughs at everything. Yeah, it was frustrating for me. I was one of three black people on the commission at the time. Um, and when I'm really passionate about something, it's hard to remove the emotion from it for me. Some of the pushback was, well, if we become a bigger commission, things are harder. Um, I think there was also probably some pushback regarding the, that it would require us to amend our current executive order, and that's a whole process in and of itself. And then there were also, you know, questions and comments. Okay, if we add a seat for um, someone who's native, 
uh, does the person have to be native or can it be someone who works for an organization that serves them? And I felt strongly it should be someone who is native because if we opened it up to an organization that serves people who are native, um, we run the risk of that person not being from that community and it kind of defeats the purpose of adding representation for that community to the commission. Um, there were also, also comments about, well, should we require them to have lived experience with suicide? Um, and I felt strongly that we shouldn't. We, we didn't require anyone else on the commission to have lived experience or to know someone um, who died by suicide or attempted suicide, except for the two seats that we have on the commission, um, specifically addressing uh, those lived experiences. So it seems like some unnecessary gatekeeping, but I think once those points were raised, people realized that it wasn't necessary to have that membership requirement for these additional seats. One of the, the highlights of the pandemic for me has been the ability to attend events that I normally wouldn't be able to attend. And I have been able to just throw conferences or summits or symposiums on the calendar and actually be able to have it open on one screen while I'm doing work on the other side. And so I do want to just give you kudos for the recent racism and mental health conference. I mean, that by far was the best conference that I've attended this year. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about what it took to get there. I mean, bridging between the conversations where we don't want to expand the table to now we're talking about racism and mental health. I mean, that's, that's a huge jump. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what it took to get there? Felt bold. I didn't know if I was going to be able to pull it off or get permission to do it. Mm -hmm. um, the idea came to me really after George Floyd was murdered. And I don't know what it was about his death, um, but it hit me really hard for weeks. I was crying every day. It had a significant emotional impact on me. And I couldn't not act. So I was trying to think about what I could feasibly do with my skill set and also recognizing the privilege that I hold, you know, with, with the positions that I have. So um, I wanted to bring attention to how racism impacts mental health. I think people know racism isn't good, but I don't think that people realize how detrimental it is to physical and mental health. So I wanted to start the conversation and what better way than to tap some of the leading experts in the country um, to provide presentations on their research and their work to do so. Um, so I approached my leadership and they were on board with it. They also felt that this was really necessary and important to highlight. And we got to work. Um, I don't recommend uh, planning a symposium in two months. That's what we did with this one. <laughs> to give a background, uh, we have an annual suicide prevention conference and we usually 
plan that in a year. Uh, we planned something with the same exact agenda in two months and it was really busy, uh, but it was so rewarding. Um, so from the minute that we decided we were going to do it, um, we didn't wait. We were just like, okay, we're setting a date. When is a feasible date for us? We, we landed on September mm. and we got to work. We started soliciting proposals. I think the cool thing about being virtual is we were able to tap people that we probably wouldn't have been able to uh, just because of, you know, money that we had dedicated to the conference. Like when you're in person, you have to pay for travel, all of that, right? Um, people's schedules might not line up with your event, but having a virtual event really made it accessible to dynamic speakers, but it also made it accessible um, to people who aren't located in Maryland. So I thought that was really cool. Um, so yeah, we, we solicited proposals, we reviewed them as a small internal team, and then, you know, we realized, hey, we should really be doing this in tandem with the Black Mental Health Alliance. So we reached out to them and we asked if they'd like to co-sponsor the event with us, and they did and they organized a dynamic, dynamic um, plenary session on trauma um, and black men. And that was one of the most powerful plenary sessions that I've ever seen um, in my life. But we were really grateful to have their guidance and their partnership in that. Um, we were able to secure Dr. Joy DeGruy, who is, a phenomenal researcher and clinician um, who does research on post-traumatic slave syndrome and how multi-generational trauma is inherited between generations and how it shows up today uh, with Black folks. And her keynote was amazing. I still think about it to this day and things that she said. So I don't know that I remember much of the process because once we made the decision, we just fl flipped the switch and we were on and just fully threw ourselves into planning this event. Um, and there wasn't really a lot to reference. We tried to search online for other racism and mental health conferences to see what topics we might be missing or try to find a template or something. And there just was not much to reference. So this felt like completely new territory, but we were really happy with the outcome and we are planning next year's symposium um, with the Black Mental Health Alliance and the Institute for Healing. Um, so we're really excited, one, to start this tradition, um, but to see where this goes. We're having a lot of conversations about how we help move people beyond just education and learning and help move them to action. Um, so there are some exciting ideas underway. Um, there's talk about establishing mentorship programs for black and brown mental health trainees and maybe even a consortium of organizations that want to prioritize anti-racism work. There's two things that I really want to hit on 
with this, um, or maybe three. One, it was such a great Black Twitter experience that day. I mean, just looking up and down my timeline, um, if people were not actively speaking on the panel, they were actually, you know, participating as part as participants like me and just being able to exchange in that way, completely ignoring the fact that we could be using Zoom to have the conversation. But it was just this insular experience that I really enjoyed. Um, the other piece is this idea of using your privilege and influence. So when we're talking about equity, in many cases, folks just say either they don't have any power or privilege, they completely ignore it, or two, they use it the wrong way. And they use it in dilute, diluting other efforts, especially from communities of color. So to hear that you were able to use the influence of government, of state government, and throwing your weight behind us, I'm imagining a smaller entity to say, hey, we want to support what you're doing. How do we work together collaboratively to advance our common goals? I mean, that that's what equity is supposed to be about. Yeah, I think that we forget the different facets of our identities at times. Um, I cannot live authentically and not recognize the areas in my life in which I have privilege. And I cannot recognize the areas in my life in which I have privilege and not use them to help others. To not help others would be so inconsistent with my values and who I am as a person. My goal always has been and always will be healing for my people and those like us who have experienced trauma and atrocities and oppression simply for being who we are. So in order to do that, I have to recognize what my privilege is and how I can use that privilege to achieve equity, to achieve healing. I really look at that as why I got where I am. I don't look at where I am and think, oh, I got here because of me. <laughs> um, I think that I was placed there because this is what I'm intended to do, is to bring healing, bring equity, and bring a voice and a champion for people who are excluded from the table, whose voice is taken from them. Um, I view that as my responsibility and I take that really seriously. There is this misconception out there and I, I have to bring it up because I see it all the time. You know, that this there, is <laughs> that there is this increase in suicide deaths right now due to COVID. True or false? False. This one is false. Um, where do I even begin with this one? Um, so I think at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of suicidologists assumed that we were in for a substantial increase in suicides during the pandemic. The logic makes sense. Um, the pandemic impacts employment, um, physical distancing measures might lead to people feeling more socially isolated. Um, 
the stress and trauma of the pandemic can exacerbate existing, existing mental health symptoms. Um, there are a lot of factors happening right now um, that can contribute to suicide risk. From the data that we have, um, there are a few states that have data out that's available publicly. This is a whole other separate issue in the field of suicide prevention that's probably a whole podcast episode in itself is the availability of timely data. Um, some states are fortunate in that they have that. Um, and British Columbia and the UK have also put out data about suicide so far in the pandemic. Um, the Department of Veteran Affairs also recently released their suicide data and it includes data on veterans up until September 2020. For all the data that we have available so far, there has not been an increase in suicide. In fact, some places are even showing a decrease in suicide deaths. Where do I think this notion is coming from? One, I think there's been a lot of reporting throughout the pandemic about significant increases in the call volume to uh, mental health crisis lines and hotlines. And I think people falsely equate those increases in call volume to an increase in suicide deaths. And that's not the case, at least that's not what we've observed so far. What it does tell us is that people are reaching out for help and support. So I think sometimes those things get falsely tied together to one another. And I think that might be a part of where this is coming from. I think also when experts came out and warned against a potential increase in suicides during the pandemic, people took that literally as if it was happening um, and not as the warning that it was. There's also been people that have said that there's been an increase. I mean, on Twitter, people with large following saying that there's been an increase in suicide deaths. Uh, 45 said it during one of the presidential debates, and I kind of went on a Twitter rant about it <laughs> because, one, it's inaccurate. There's not data to support the notion that suicides are increasing during the pandemic and especially not in the sense in which he tried to allude to and that people are dying by suicide because of stay-at-home orders. Um, so I just felt really frustrated in that moment in that he would make an accusation that's not rooted in data um, and to weaponize suicide for political reasons um, to try to circumvent necessary public health measures for this pandemic that we're experiencing. I feel that if he truly cared about suicide, he would not be trying to push policies and continue to make decisions that we know contribute to suicide risk, like overturning marriage equality, 
othering groups of people, refusing to address institutional racism, refusing to provide financial support to people who have lost their jobs as a result of the pandemic, refusing to enact a nationwide moratorium on eviction um, from homes. These are all things that could be done <laughs> to directly address uh, factors that contribute to suicide risk that have not been done. So I just felt like it was an inappropriate weaponizing of suicide for political motivations. Um, and it's just, it wasn't appropriate and it's also not rooted in data. It's unfortunate that we see in many cases decisions made <clears throat> politically that end up being weaponized. When you talk about data that clearly articulates there is a relationship here, but a fear of loyalty or losing loyalty to your political lines and alliances. It's, it's unfortunate because who ends up hurting in the end? The people who need services most. The data is the data, and we serve who we serve. I serve the great folks of Maryland, and they will always be my priority in planning and programming and implementation. Um, I think that this is a common issue that we run into in the suicide prevention field, especially around guns. Guns are a really polarizing topic. Um, and I think that people equate suicide prevention, access to lethal means interventions with gun control. And that's not what it is. Um, so I try to be really mindful in having those conversations. Um, to really frame it as a health intervention because that's what it is. So if I'm talking about counseling on access to lethal means, that is a health intervention. If I'm talking about safe storage, that is a health intervention because it's not just about suicide. It's also about keeping your kids safe. It's about um, making sure the other people in your household are safe, that someone who should not have access to that firearm does not get access to it. Um, so we were really intentional about framing it as the health intervention that it is to try to break down um, those barriers and misconceptions that um, we wanna take guns away. I, I grew up in Delaware. I grew up on a farm. My family owned guns as I was growing up. Um, in fact, we, we shot guns on holidays and stuff. It, it was part of the culture of where I lived. I don't mind if people own guns, but I want them to be safe if they do. Um, and like you said, we know that having easy access to lethal means is a really significant risk factor, and it's one of the most easily addressed risk factors. Um, suicide, based on research that we have, we know can happen very quickly from the moment someone decides to make an attempt 
um, about 25% of suicide attempts occurred within five minutes of making the decision. So if we can just put time and space between someone in crisis and lethal means, we can save a lot of lives. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about handling the critics, right? Because I know sitting in your seat as a chair, um, working in state government, there's gotta be people who have opinions. And I would love to hear, oh, and also just monitoring some of the conversations that you have on social media. I know there's, there's been some things that have occurred, but how do you go about handling microaggressions in the field and what have they looked like? Wow. Um, so we only have 40 minutes, right? Um, microaggressions, they happen frequently, not only with my race, but I feel like also my gender and my age. So um, there have been times like you when someone challenges my training and knowledge and expertise based on a cursory Google search that they did. And that's really frustrating, um, especially because they tend to interpret things wrong on what they do find. Um, and, uh, you know, it never fails every time after I speak at a conference, someone coming up to me and telling me I'm so well spoken. And I think it wouldn't be so odd necessarily, or maybe I wouldn't think about it twice if it didn't also happen after I've keynoted conferences. Um, because if I was selected as the keynote, I would think that I am well-spoken. <laughs> so I get, I get those comments. Um, it happens a lot too in just that when I'm talking and I'm direct, uh, people will tell me that I'm angry or that I'm rude or they'll assume that I have an attitude and they assign a tone to me that's not there. Certainly there are times when I am frustrated and I may have a tone, but it almost never happens in those situations when I actually have one, uh, which can be kind of frustrating because um, it's an extra layer of thought that I have to go through uh, that other people who look like me don't. And it's a burden. Um, I'm sure, I've, as you've seen, um, I've become really active in the social and racial justice space. And with that comes a lot of critics and trolls. And I think when I first started becoming outspoken, those people really bothered me. Like, it would really anger me. It would be really hard for me to not respond. And I realized that they wouldn't be trying to silence me if I didn't have something important to say. And I also, <laughs> sometimes just make a joke out of it, you know, that there are people on the internet who make their whole personality arguing with strangers on the internet. Um, it's really frustrating, I'm not going to lie. I think what centers me is that I believe in what I say 
um, when it's applicable, I always try to ensure that what I'm saying is backed up by evidence or data. And I always come back to knowing who I am, knowing the training that I have, uh, where my areas of expertise are, whether that's through formal education or my lived experience. And I also really value that I'm able to admit when I don't know something. So I tend not to speak on things that I know nothing about. And I think having that self-awareness is really helpful when people come out of the woodwork and try to criticize you. There are always gonna be critics, um, but I also try to remember the place that they're speaking out of, um, and that can be helpful. The other thing that's really helpful that I really think everyone should consider doing is just really liberally using your block button. I've gotten to the point where I just see someone say, say something stupid, offensive, whatever it is, and it's done, they're blocked. It's taken a lot of internal work to get to that place and not wanna respond. Um, but honestly, it's best to just ignore them and keep it moving. I also think it's really helpful in these situations to have a community of people that you can talk to about it so that you can feel supported and validated get your little vent session out and keep moving on with the important work that you're doing. So you've given us two tips so far, you know, for handling those type of situations, using your block button, surrounding yourself with a community of people. You mind just rounding us out with three? Yeah. So I think a third one would be Reminding yourself that silence is a tactic that the oppressor uses to maintain the status quo. This has been something that's been really helpful for me in the social and racial justice space in coming back to and centering myself on. Uh, especially early on, I used to be fearful of being so outspoken and my brother told me to be careful um, and I understand that there is a certain level of vigilance that you need to have, especially if you're operating in the space. But that fear that leads to silence is exactly what they want. And that's just not my spirit. Like, as I mentioned earlier, I strongly believe that it is my responsibility to be a voice for people ha who have been excluded and ignored, and I'm going to continue to do that. And in moments where I might feel anxious or fearful or like I shouldn't speak up, I just always come back to that touch point that this is what they want. And that usually gives me enough courage to move forward with doing what I need to do in those moments. I also saw a tweet yesterday or the day before that I thought was really impactful. And the original poster had mentioned that 
someone asked, wasn't she afraid of being so outspoken about social and racial justice issues and that causing um, her to lose her job or not be offered opportunities? And she said that it didn't because she knew that being outspoken would lead her to the right opportunities for her. And I thought that was really profound and something that I'm working to internalize um, as I'm moving in this space and being vocal about these things. So I know you mentioned that you've gotten a lot more active on social media. Is there any way for people to keep up with you, um, with the work of the commission maybe even? I know that you have a growing uh, TikTok presence, even though I'm not on TikTok, but I do enjoy watching the videos that you make. Um, how can people keep up with you? Yeah, so if you want to keep up with me, um, my Twitter handle is at Janelle Cubbage. It's J-A-N-E-L-C-U-B-B-A-G-E. I also have an Instagram page um, called Black Minds Collaborative, and that's at Black Minds Collaborative underscore on Instagram. And if you'd like to follow me on TikTok, I am at the Tattooed Counselor. Anything else that you'd like to drive home as we prepare to wrap up? The message that I would send since this is sort of an extension out of your previous episode about checking on your strong Black friend is to remember to rest. We are not going to solve 400 years of oppression and institutional racism overnight. This is a marathon, not a sprint. And taking care of ourselves is an act of resistance. Being joyful in the midst of everything going on and against us is an act of resistance. And this false sense of urgency is a symptom of white supremacy that we need to divest ourselves of. We cannot allow other people to try to force their perceived emergency on us and make it ours. So my message is to rest. I love it. I'm a fledgling member of the NAP ministry. So. Yes, yes. Yeah, I've come a long way. I can do a lot in an hour now. Like, take a quick power nap, I'm back at it. Much, much better person, too. I'm sure my kids would agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I mean, the most helpful thing for me, honestly, I used to get, when people would come to me with these quote-unquote urgent things, um, it would like work me up and make me so anxious. And then I get so pissed off because I'm like, this is not urgent. This is not an emergency. And then when I started reading about urgency as a sign of white supremacy culture, I was like, I'm divesting myself of this shit immediately. And I did, and I'm less anxious. I mean, I still have anxiety because I just have anxiety, but it's completely changed the way that I approach and respond to those situations, which is helpful because there are other more important things that deserve my attention and energy. So 
Agreed. I am listening to this as a listener, not just as a as a host right now. So Janelle, it's been great catching up. I mean, I know you're doing great work in Maryland because I, I reference it all the time. I'm working on, you know, if not sending some folks from Michigan to the next racism and mental health summit, trying to get them on board with doing something similar in our state. So I'll definitely be reaching out, continue to do the good work, taking care of yourself and dismissing the haters out there. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I would like to extend a special thanks again to Janelle for hopping on the podcast. I realize more and more I am so fortunate to have people around me who are willing to tell their story and are willing to share kind of the struggles that they have in the work that they do. And I think part of the reason why Equity Matters has been so successful is because we're all united by that struggle for achieving social justice, regardless of what space we may be in or may be feeling at the time. So for folks who are out there who are engaged in that heavy lift, or that uphill battle, know that you are not alone and know that there are other folks working across sectors, across the aisles who want to see the same outcomes that you do. As always, you can find us on social media. We are on all the major platforms. The link is in the bio. Regardless of wherever you're looking, you can find us. Instagram, that is at Equity Matters Podcast. On Twitter, that is at Equity Matters PC. And you can like the Equity Matters Podcast on Facebook. We are sending out our monthly e-zines. Please sign up, subscribe for those as well. We just sent out one for February. Don't miss out on March. Speaking of March, we have a new month coming up, so there will be new episodes. It looks like a full month, folks. I know I said that I was going to start doing two episodes a month. I lied. There's just too much to do, too many stories to tell, and it's going to be a good one. We are breaking down the social work profession. It is National Social Work Month. Therefore, I found it to be fitting that we invite some folks in who could talk about the different facets of social work and even spend a little bit of time talking about what the future should look like or could look like for that matter. So be on the lookout for those announcements coming very, very soon. I'm not going to belabor the point here. You know how I'm going to sign off. Equity matters. Equity matters.